Good evening, Grace Church. It's good to see everybody here tonight. If you want to find your way in and be seated. I want to make a few announcements tonight. Uh, the first being to remind everybody about pre-registration for youth camp. Um, we certainly hope that it's on your radar. Youth camp is so much fun for our kids. I have incredible memories from youth camp. So if you have not registered your child already, you can do so on the LA District UPC website. So please make that a priority if your child wants to go. The other announcement I want to make tonight is this coming Saturday, we are hosting a junior Bible quizzing tournament. I know y'all hear a lot about Bible quizzing. Um, it, it's a wonderful ministry. I'll be completely honest with you, it's a lot of work for parents and quizzers alike. But there is so much benefit and blessing in Bible quizzing, and we sure would love to have you come support us. If you haven't seen a Bible quizzing tournament, you can come see what it's all about. Um, we would love to have you here so that you can see what all goes on in the world of Bible quizzing. I talked to Pastor uh, a couple of weeks ago. He preached a sermon called The Treasure in the Field on Sunday, May 1st. I don't know if y'all remember that sermon. Um, his introduction included a segment on dumpster diving, if that helps you to recall the sermon. And when he began to talk about dumpster diving, you know, my mind kind of goes in the, the autocomplete, your, your predictive text, what's he going to say next? And so my mind started going in a direction, which as it turned out was a different direction from what he preached about. But I talked to him afterwards and I said, you know, when you started talking about dumpster diving, this is what I thought about. And he said, well, I think that would be good to present, you know, to the church, maybe on a Wednesday night. So I want to share with you this thought that I had during that sermon. We all know that the parable of the buried treasure, it, it illustrates the value of the kingdom of God. But in my mind, I started to ask some questions during his introduction. The primary question I began to ask is why did someone bury such a valuable, life-changing treasure. Who was this person? Why did they do that? Who was this person hiding a treasure from? Several years ago, Chris and I bought some land, and over time, we've made an effort to clean up um, a small section of the land that's wooded. We have found piles of trash sitting uh, in certain areas of the woods. But we've also discovered some things that are buried. Things that at one time were, were purchased. It was a purchased item. Things that at one time were deemed valuable. And I couldn't help but think of what we've thrown away spiritually. Things that have been purchased by God himself that together comprise an unchanging biblical truth. Maybe it's a treasure of faithfulness that's been buried. Consecration, maybe it's a godly lifestyle that over time has been buried. Maybe it's clean communication or even our love for God. Treasures buried in a field, buried. And then I began to think of how tragic that our children or generations to come 
they may have to go dumpster diving, so to speak, to find the truth that we once held as a conviction. They'll have to go dumpster diving to find what we threw away, what we buried, what we have hid. There's a movement in our culture to discard portions of what we believe, sometimes to even discard everything of what we believe. Bring your beliefs into question. Put them under the microscope. Pick them apart, maybe with some fellow friends on a social media platform. And when you're finished, throw them away. Let me say this about our culture, to parents, to grandparents, to young people. If culture is encouraging it, you should turn away from it. That's a good rule of thumb. Don't think that the enemy of our soul is going to be obvious. He will have you keep just enough of what you believe to make yourself feel good. All the while, we're not realizing that he will eventually chip away at our very core. And if this feels all too familiar tonight, I want to encourage you that you are just one decision, just one, from unearthing the treasure of truth that maybe you unintentionally buried. You're only one decision away from digging up your value, values that were once established by the word of God. I want to challenge myself, every one of us tonight, to buy the truth again, all of it, not part of it, Buy the whole truth again, pull it out of the dirt, clean it up, so to speak, and sell it not. Instead, let's place it in the hands of our children, put it into the hands of the next generation, and use it to build strong families, to build strong godly relationships with one another so that together we can reach a hurting world. Are you thankful for truth tonight? Are you thankful for mercy made new every day? Let's thank God as pastor comes. Thank you, Casey, for that. Um, Mighty words of wisdom you've just heard. And uh, I think parents sometimes are a little bit guilty of saying, if you want to find the truth and know the truth, then uh, here's a shovel. Go dig around in my field. Um, That's where we're living. Like it or not, that's where we're living. And uh, I thank God for parents that are willing to stand their ground in a very anti-God culture that we're now living in. Thank you all for your convictions and the wonderful truth that you hold dear to your heart. Thank you all very much. Um, I am experiencing a moment right now that I have desired for a long, long time. And um, I hope the trend will continue. We've had folks that's changed their seating arrangement, which makes this, what I'm doing right now, a little bit easier to do. And I'm very thankful for that. 
really, really appreciate it. I would like to submit to those of you that are in the Sunday morning Sunday school class, if you would move up way closer to the front, this room wouldn't be so big and loomy, but it could become a little more intimate if everybody's just sitting right up here in the front, and it would make Brother Ben's job a whole lot easier. Just something to think about. I want to jump into our Bible study tonight, and um, I would like to see a very strong and powerful move of the Holy Ghost here tonight. I didn't come, I didn't plan to preach tonight, and I'm not planning to preach tonight, but I just, I have felt since Sunday morning that God wants to be real intimate with us. Uh, he just wants to be real close right now. And I would like to see folks here tonight engage the presence of the Lord to engage the word of the Lord and let him minister, let him challenge us, let him challenge our thinking. I meant my Bible study title to be something a little bit in jest, but as I've gotten closer to Bible study time tonight, it's not nearly as cute and humorous as I wanted it to be. Uh, I'll ask you to do this anyway. Just look at your neighbor and tell him to grow up. Just grow up. <clears throat> a girlfriend said to her boyfriend one time, please listen to what I want to present here tonight. I'm going to ask everybody to do that. Try to get your head around this. And this is somewhat in preparation for this coming Sunday, uh, Lord willing. The girlfriend said to her boyfriend one time after he insulted her, she said to him, you say something nice to me right now or our relationship's over, I'm walking away. He paused for a moment, knew she was very serious, was not funny and humorous anymore. And he looked her right square in the eye and said, you make me want to be a better man and she said that's the finest compliment the best compliment I've ever gotten from anybody I want to challenge Grace Church tonight as we move into our our future our future vision uh, our future plans this should be our attitude and our posture towards God and especially the church when I attend here you make me want to be a better person you make me want to be a better person. Media Booth, if you would go with me to page five in my notes tonight. I just felt like the first part of this was not needful as the service got closer. If you'll go to the highlight, Peyton, where it says we join together and put that on the screen. When we come together as believers and wanting to make each other feel like we need to be even better. Um, when we join together in a body of believers, as individuals, we're a part of the body in order to be more powerfully and to, to more powerfully and eloquently worship. We also grow as disciples by being here among our brothers and our sisters in fellowship. We join together in a body of believers in order to be more powerfully and eloquently 
excuse me, to more powerfully and eloquently worship. And then to be among our brothers and sisters in fellowship, which should make us want to be better people. I want to mention three things here tonight that God uses to help us reach this place in our relationship with him and our relationship with each other that we, when we gather, we can be more powerful and we can be more eloquent in worship. And then we can also grow as disciples and, and our relationship with God continues to develop as we fellowship with our brothers and sisters. There's a little part of me that's a little regretful that we don't address each other too much as brother and sister so-and-so anymore. A lot of people think that's my word is hokey. It's out of style. It's traditional. It needs to go away. So in a lot of circles, and I hear our, our students oftentimes refer to adults here at church as Mr. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so. Sometimes I wish we could go back to brother and sister. You're not a Mr. and a Mrs. to me. You're my brother, and you're my sister. You're my family. But I want to mention some things that are, that are very important. They're discipleship tools. Can you all say that with me? Discipleship tools? Discipleship tools? All three of these discipleship tools that, that I'm going to present to you tonight, all of them come from the life of Christ. So if anyone is an expert, if you will, or someone who really knows what these things are and the value of these things are, Jesus does. Who would know them better than him? Not only do they come from the life of Christ, but it's, it's very compelling to me as to where we find them in the life of Christ. At what stage in his life did these things come uh, did they come from, did they come as a result of? First of all, we all know and understand tonight that Jesus had trouble, a lot of it, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't a long period of time. It wasn't days and weeks. It was just a few hours of some of the most hardcore trouble that anybody on this planet has ever experienced. And then he also had his temptation. Now, that was a little bit longer. It was 40 days and so on. But he was drawn away into the desert or into the wilderness. And there, we all know that he was tempted of the devil. And, and I can't imagine what it's like to hang out with a visible Satan for a month and a half. A lot of people think you do that when you live with your spouse, but I promise you, the devil's a whole lot worse, believe it or not. And then, when he was on the cross, he bore our sin and our trespasses. So he bore our sin and trespasses on the cross. That, again, was not a very long time. It was nine hours, and I'm... Sure, Jesus in his manly form and flesh would say, you tell me that wasn't a very long time. 
I'm talking about months, weeks, years of suffering. It was nine hours. It was less than a day. It was less than a half a day. But during that nine hours, I cannot imagine the brutality of the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual that man was experiencing on the cross. Everything hit him from every direction. So notice with me tonight, he had trouble in the Garden of Gethsemane. The highlight of that, and probably what most of us will default to, is betrayal. He was betrayed. The hurt of betrayal is immeasurable. And then on the cross, he had our sins, not his. If it had been his own sin, maybe you understand a little bit more, and he understood a little bit more. I deserve to be here. But that wasn't the case. His trespasses that he carried on the cross wasn't his they were ours. And then in temptation with the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, he had the demonic. I want to talk to you tonight for a little bit about these three things. Listen to what I'm about to say. Everybody listen. Our young people. The point of this trilogy of trial. The point of this trilogy of trial. Guard of Gethsemane, the desert, the cross, trouble, temptation, trespass. The point is, it can either make you holier, or if you will excuse my, excuse my expression, it can make you a little ball of hell here on earth. Is everybody on, are you, are you with me? You understand? I hope those of you, I say this nearly every Wednesday night, and I, I, I don't like to say it, but I hope whatever you're doing on your phone right now is more important than what I'm saying. I, just, I hope it's more important. Let's talk about trouble. <clears throat> As I've just mentioned, the trouble that he experienced in Gethsemane that night is the highlight of it, in my opinion at least, is betrayal outside of the demons he was facing and praying, trying to pray to God that this cup would pass from here or whatever. Bottom line, the trouble he had in the, the garden that night, what we can glean from it is trouble can make you worse or trouble can make you better depending on your commitment to discipleship. Jesus was committed that no matter what he faced, in that last week of his life, from the triumphal entry to his dying on the cross, he was committed to the joy that was set before him. He was committed to that. He knew it was going to be better if he could just survive this moment. He knew that. So troubles can make you worse or they can make you better, depending on your commitment to discipleship, and we all know people who don't have the commitment. They're not at the commitment level. I'm going to talk about this in a moment. They're not at the discipleship level to endure that kind of trouble. But thank God there's a room full of people here tonight that are up to the task. God, I'm going to fight it out. God, I'm going to fight it out. I'm going to fight it out. I'm going to fight it out. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm not going to get my feelings hurt and quit. I'm not going to let somebody betraying me and hurting me and crushing me and doing all these horrible things. One of my own disciples, one of my own very best friends, I'm not going to let them stop me. 
from my relationship with God. So here's the, the growth principle of growing up. <laughs> I don't like this, and, and you don't either. None of us do. But God uses trouble to teach us to trust in him. I don't believe he necessarily orchestrates it and makes it happen. But if it does, he has a unique way of stepping right in the middle of it. If you don't believe it, ask the three Hebrew boys. Ask Daniel. They'll tell you that God has a way of taking the most difficult time you've ever experienced in your life and getting right up in the middle with it with you and teach you how to trust in the Lord. Now, I love it when things are going great in my life. We all do. Love it. When things are amazing, all of your relationships are all lined up like they should be. You know, finances are good. There's nothing wrong with the house. You know, everything's good. Everything's good. I love those times. Uh, it would be awesome to spend my entire existence in an emotional Disneyland. But there's not much growth spending round and round in those little teacup things. We become better disciples in our relationship with God when we go through hard times and challenging experiences. We just do. There was an interesting article in, in Newsweek magazine a number of years ago by Fareed Zakaria, if I'm pronouncing the name right. It was a brilliant, very brilliant columnist, some say, about why the Middle East has so much difficulty politically. This is what the person said. The entire region is just a mess all the time, and we all know that. There's trouble constantly. Why is that? With all the advantages, you think it would be a model of maturity. The person pointed out that exactly the opposite has been true for decades. These are societies built on the billions of petrodollars that come from oil, there's just always been this gusher of money available. So the citizens have never had to pay taxes. They've never had to learn the art of compromise, of building a consensus, of working with other people to get things done. And although this is a, an oversimplification, the person writes, the region has just stayed stuck in political kindergarten. It is hard to learn democracy. It's difficult to master the idea of sacrifice. Senator John McCain, the late Senator John McCain, said at the height of the Iraq conflict, uh, it broke with his political party, is when he broke with his political party and said, during a time of war, our nation has never, ever gone with the idea of handing out huge tax cuts then. Other times, sure. But when our soldiers are overseas fighting, you don't pass out money at home and run up the deficits then. No, he said, democracy is built on shared sacrifice. And in our lives, I think we can all look back at some of the spikes of trouble, of hurt and challenge. And we see that this is when we did some of our best growing, some of our greatest opportunities to be more mature, one translation of Romans 5, 3, and 4 says this trouble produces patience, and patience produces character, and character produces hope. We need to be clear 
We need to be clear that many problems are sent to our address by Satan, not God. God never causes anyone to sin in order for us to be challenged. The insurance companies tell us sometimes that God sends the hurricanes. It's an act of God, they say. It's simply not true. However, we have a God who is never defeated, and God will use the trials of life, even those thought up by Lucifer, as a way of preparing us for heaven. God is brilliant at this. We're not put here to be comfortable. We're put here to develop character. Character and family and friends are really the only things we can take with us in a suitcase to heaven, one writer said. It may help us in going through hard times to realize that the problems we, we face do have a purpose. The late Adrian Rogers had a line once uh, where he said his dad disciplined him quite a bit very often in his childhood. Adrian said that his dad would tell him every time, every time he was disciplined, he said, Adrian, I do this because I love you. Adrian wrote years later, he said, I think I must have been my dad's favorite. I understand. God is going to use troubles to help us grow and to help us be more like Jesus. So, Let's go to a Bible scene that's very familiar. Jesus in Gethsemane on a very dark Thursday night. It's the pivotal moment in, in human history as he stays with his decision. He is sticking with his decision. I'm going to the cross the next day. Put it in that perspective if you've never had. He is staying with the decision that God is not going to bail him out. So he stays with his decision to do it anyway. Roy Adams is a, an editor for the, the Adventist uh, religion, if you will. He edits for the Adventist Review, suggests that on that evening, think about this, on that evening, every other city in the world, that night of Gethsemane, that Thursday night of Gethsemane, every other city in the world was completely demon-free. There were none of Satan's angels in Nazareth, Bethlehem, Rome, Ephesus, anywhere. They were all in that garden giving Jesus pure emotional hell, if you'll excuse my expression. Mark 14, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Distress and anguish came over him and he said, the sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. There's a couple of important lessons we can learn right here. First, first, even Jesus craved his small group at this time of pain. Jesus craved his small group. There's only 12 people, but he had given anything to have had that little group of 12 people. We cannot misunderstand how important we are and the role we oftentimes serve in the lives of other people, most of the time not even knowing it. Sometimes people go through stuff and they just need to see their fellow brothers and sisters. They just need to see you present. They need to see your face. Sometimes they need to hear your voice, etc. Even Jesus needed his small group 
in this time of pain. He wanted his friends with him. He was committed to a task. He was committed with a purpose. And he needed his support group. He was lonely and he reached out. So when trials come, folks, when trouble comes, we do need each other. If you're in the trial, you need people. When you're not in a trial, you need to understand that you're needed even though you're not in a trial. You don't have to be in a trial to need or to be needed. We have to understand that we could be having the most glorious moment of our life and the person sitting next to us could be going through the most difficult moment in their life and they need us. We are a family here. We have to be supportive. We are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And I can say of a truth, I believe Grace Church is amazing at this. I have talked to people through the years on many occasions when they have said, when I was in trouble, I called so-and-so. When I, I called them to hear their voice, I called them for encouragement. I called them to pray. I didn't go into any detail, just told them I was going through a hard time, and they, and they committed, they promised me that they would pray. And I know they did because it wasn't long that I began to feel better. Sometimes it wouldn't hurt if we were a little more sensitive and a little more discerning as to when people might be going through a hard time. The second lesson we can learn just quickly in passing is it's, it's all right to cry out and rail in frustration even to God. Do you think Jesus was trying to be appropriate and kind and all of those words that night in the garden of Simeon? I don't believe he was. I mean, blood was oozing through the pores of his skin because of the pressure and the anxiety and the frustration and the, I can't believe I'm committing to this posture. I can't believe I've committed to this posture. I've lived 33 and a half years for this moment. Now it's here. Now I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm going through this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I can't take it. I can't bear it. So he calls out to God. The flesh part of Jesus calls out to God and said, Would you please take this off of me? I don't like the Renaissance artist paintings of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that has him with his hands like this and the little halo around his head and all that. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. There were tears. Blood was streaming through the pores of his skin and he was begging Please don't make me do this. Please don't require this level of discipleship out of me. How many of us have prayed that prayer? God, I don't want to. Do you understand that? I don't want to. But God says if you want the joy and the reward that's ahead, you're going to have to. And you say, I don't want to do it. I don't. <laughs> I don't want to be involved in that ministry at church. I, I don't have time. I don't want to be that committed. I've, I've had people tell me over and over, I just can't make that kind of a commitment. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And that's why sometimes there's an absence of joy in our life. It's because we never followed through with the level of commitment and sacrifice that God wanted us out of as, as a disciple so that we could have the joy that came as a result. So God accepts our anguished howls when we hurt. And you can say to him, it's, it's okay. 
don't, don't have the wrong attitude, but if you're sincere and you're hurting, God understands human emotion. It's what's going on. I don't get it. I don't see your purpose here. I've said that over and over a thousand times during COVID. I still say it. With this COVID thing, I still don't understand the purpose of it. I've never gone as far, though, as to tell God to pick on somebody your own size. Never gone that far. It's fruitless because there is nobody else. But then in the same breath, you need to say, but God, I still love you. And I still trust you. And if this is what it needs to be, then fine. If there's a lesson I need to learn, I'm willing to learn it. Gethsemane teaches us one thing for sure. Is when things are absolutely the worst, we have to trust in God. We can't listen. Everybody listen. Everybody listen. We can't just hang on to his hand from one through seven on a ten-point scale of sorrow. And then throw in the towel and give up on him at eight, nine, and ten. God has a path that he knows you're going to be walking. It's going to require a certain level of commitment. You can't quit just beneath what God intends. I stand amazed at how people cope in Ukraine tonight. Or people who lose their home in a hurricane. I still look at Dave and Farrah Bunch sometimes, and they're two amazing, amazing kids. And I just shake my head sometimes. I don't understand because he had to leave Memphis when Dawson was so terribly sick and come home to a flooded out house. When I pulled up that morning, I, I pulled up in his driveway and tears streamed down my face. Brian Tear was on a machine. He'd drive it up to the a tractor, drive it up to the door stoop, and all the men inside would take all of their belongings from a lifetime and throw it in the bucket of that machine, and Brian would flip the tractor around and go dump it on the side of the street. I couldn't take it. But somehow, when you see people go through these times, when they have a child that dies, etc., we see Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane in the throes of agony, nothing but screaming desperate fear. And in all of that moment, he prays that final last prayer but not my will, but thine be done. One way to develop a resolute maturity in our faith is to practice what we call journaling or keeping a spiritual diary. Some say Moses did that when you read Numbers 33. I know there's people here at Grace Church that do it. The point of it is you write down all of your feelings and your attitude and your spirit and all of that and then when you go through a similar time later on down the line you can go back to it and read it again and, and I remember now how I got through that very very difficult time but what I want to submit to you tonight no matter what you're going through tonight no matter what you're going to go through don't ever forget the reward We've said it a thousand times here, working for Jesus don't pay that much here. But the retirement plan is out of this world. Don't ever forget the reward. And then there's plenty here. There's so many here 
after the trial, after the difficulty. Jesus had so often told his followers about his resurrection, about heaven, about the coming kingdom. And I'm sure on this dark Thursday night with the storm clouds all around and Lucifer screaming at him to quit, Jesus had to look forward to the prize and remember, this is temporary. This is momentary. Soon, very soon, we'll all be home. This has been said numerous times, and there's a little bit of jest to it, but there's a lot of truth to it, too. A pregnant mother in the maternity ward might find it temporarily difficult to see her way through to the promised land of delivering her child. At a time like that, a mother will utter vile threats and speak about, even speak about murder to the kind, self-sacrificing, coaching, encouraging husband who is patiently standing there trying to help. Mommy says, if I ever get my claws around your throat, you did this to me. But then she remembers that a little bundle of happiness, a little bundle of joy is about to arrive. And it's in those waning moments of childbirth that you don't quit at the seventh rung of the ladder on a ten-point step ladder. You have to follow through with your commitment. Let's look at temptation, the second area of Jesus' life that I want to draw from tonight in our growing. God uses temptation to teach us to obey him. And nobody likes the trust word is, is one thing, obeying the obedience word, the obey word is something else. Again, temptations come from Lucifer, but God allows it, and he overrules for his greater glory. We can learn and grow from our temptations. Temptations involve choices. Everybody say choices. Temptations involve choices, and choices can lead to growth. And a child who never gets to make decisions never grows up to adulthood. I heard about a young man named Nicholas Leeson, who was a financial genius. He was working for Barings Bank, headquartered in London, and he was in the Hong Kong branch doing what, he, what is called derivative deals. These are high-flying, very speculative investment schemes. And he was just piling up money for his, his clients that, that did their business with the bank. And, well, there was one week where some of his financial bets, if you will, these derivative vehicles went south a bit. And not serious losses, but enough to wake you up and... He faced a decision. He faced a choice. Should he tell uh, the, the investors at the bank and so on that they've had a bad week? Or should he quietly on his own just double his bets and recoup the money? Well, he made the second choice. And he put more of his clients' money out there on the dice table, if you will. And unfortunately, there was a second bad week following the first one. And now he's in a double bind. He lost more money. Plus, now if he confessed... He'd have to admit he fudged in reporting the first downturn, and so he plowed even more seed money into some deals, hoping to still come out on top. To make a long story short, the market went into a long bear slide, and this young man, who was only about 28 years old, making Internet deals on a laptop, lost all control. He was lying to everyone there was, robbing Peter to pay Paul, scamming everybody. He didn't mean to. But the whole thing just got away from him. And before it was done, this once fresh-faced boy with an internet modem had lost all by himself 
over a billion dollars. One billion with a B. The bank he worked for did not survive it. And Lisa went to jail for six years. Habits and temptations are like cobwebs that soon turn into chains. We, we, we can grow from the wrestling process and the triumphant right choice. We can grow from the sorrow of the wrong choice as well. But God would love to spare us the accompanying hurt. Here are two quick points about that. Temptations are not a sin. The classic line by Martin Luther, so it goes, is that you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building nest, a nest in your hair. Number two, a temptation is essentially a testing of this question. Do we love God more than this thing we're being tempted with? Three times there in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, Satan put an opportunity for Jesus to submerge his loyalty to God in heaven and take a shortcut. And for us, it's often a question of, do you love money and affluence most or pleasure or comfort or affirmation, sexual gratification, wrong relationships, all these things? Do you love that more than God? It's the bottom line question. So let me share two specific suggestions about facing temptations. First of all, it tells us in Philippians 4 eight to fill our minds with holy and uplifting thoughts. This is called the displacement principle, if you will. It's where positive images replace negative ones, where Bible promises replace discouraging attitudes, where the good books, we focus our minds on fortify us than do sinful ones. You can't think about two things at the same time, and if we are tempted by sin, quickly flee to higher mental ground and use this as a successful strategy. It's called the displacement principle. You push the sinful thought out of your mind. The second thing is it's also a blessing to have what we call a mentor or a spiritual partner, an accountability partner. The Bible said you're better off to have a friend than to be all alone, and if you fail, your friend can help you up. A small group can do this. A one-on-one -on -one best friend can do this. A men's fellowship or a girls' night out group can do this. The Apostle Paul did better when he took along a Silas, a Barnabas, a John Mark, a Timothy, than when he went his ministry alone. And again, there in Gethsemane, when Jesus was tempted, he craved the fellowship of Peter, James, and John. And here in the wilderness temptations, angels came to be with him. Right after all that happened, they came, the Bible said, and they ministered to him. Our final tool that we can use for discipleship and growth is trespasses. But in this case, not our own. It's the sins of others. God uses trespasses and mistakes to teach us to forgive one another. If there's a fruit, a positive fruit, of sin and betrayal and whatnot. It's learning how to forgive those that do it. To learn how to let go of our grudges, our desire for revenge. The ultimate picture of that is Jesus on the cross. People are verbally crucifying him, ridiculing him, cursing him, spitting in his face. All of that. Thieves on each side screaming to save us. Rick Warren said one time, trials are designed by God to draw us closer to him. Trials are designed by God to draw us closer to him. Temptations are designed by the devil to draw us away from him. 
and trespasses are designed by other people to hurt us. Again, trespasses, other people's sins against us are not a part of God's plan, but he uses them and they're a vehicle for our growth. And the two points to bear in mind are these. First, remember that God has forgiven us first. And so we forgive because he forgave. We don't forgive because they're worthy of it. We forgive because he's worthy of it. I like to call grace and forgiveness this vast ocean. It's just a global enveloping body of cleansing water. And God says to all of us, come on in. It's free. It's for you. I created this ocean of my love at the cross. Only one caveat. If you get in it, you have to let your neighbor get in it with you. It's not just for you. The grace of God is not just for me. So we forgive others according to the Lord's Prayer and according to Ephesians chapter 4 because God forgave us. He forgave our five billion dollar sin so we can forgive our neighbors their five dollar sins we must also remember and i'm bringing this to a conclusion that god is always in control the story of joseph of the old testament is a classic one joseph's evil brother sold him into slavery then he's accused of rape and tossed in jail and finally he has a chance to get out and the man he helps with a favor forgets to reciprocate, and so now Joseph spends another 13 long years in a sale of unfairness being sinned against. He has this long list of people he ought to get even with, and when he becomes the prime minister of Egypt, he certainly now has the tools of revenge and justice in his hand. But when he faces his brothers for the first time in so many years, and his get-even moment is right there, he turns away from it and says, No, you guys... God was in control all along. We know he said that. You remember the scripture setting where he said that. What you did was wrong, but God used even your sin and my trial and my temptation in order to save two empires, that of Egypt and that of Israel. Every revenge story I've ever studied in terms of theology comes down to a willingness to let God be God and leave the vengeance to him. And this is a hard laboratory of real growth of becoming like Jesus who said as the nails were going into his hands and feet, Father forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Keep loving them on my behalf as I hang here dying. So if we surrender ourselves completely to God he's going to take us through these three battlefields, yes, he will. A Gethsemane of trial, where we learn to trust his love through a desert of temptation, where we learn to obey his command and do what he asks us to do. And now at Calvary, a Calvary of trespasses, where we learn to forgive others as God has forgiven us, where we learn to give our thirst for payback to him for eternal safekeeping. So I want everyone here tonight to understand as I preach to you Sunday, God is here and he cares. And I said this Sunday in my message, we feel like sometimes God's caring for us. He sure has a funny way of showing it. But it's not God inflicting all the stuff as I pointed out here tonight. It's not God inflicting all the trial and the pain and the heartache and the suffering and the no answers to the questions and the unanswered prayers and all that. It's not God doing that. It's our world, it's sin, it's the devil himself, 
It's all of that working together in a very unified effort to destroy people of the church, to destroy people of faith. But if we as a church are willing to let God take us to that next rung of discipleship commitment, there's a greater joy on the other side of that. There's a greater fulfillment. We have to believe that. We have to trust that. If we don't, we'll all be so bitter. Nobody will want to be around us. I want to encourage somebody here tonight. God knew from the very beginning where you would be tonight. He knew that. And if he's directed your path to this point, he's not going to abandon you here, but he's still going to hold your hand, and he's going to lead you to the next victory, to the mountaintop of glory. There's a joy that's coming ahead or excuse me, following your trial. There's a joy ahead of you that's waiting, and we have to keep that in perspective. I'm going to ask you to stand with me tonight. I'm not going to ask you to come down around the front, but this is what I'm going to ask you to do. If you'll start at this wall and this wall and just start walking this way till we're all kind of bunched up together, enough where we can maybe put our hand on somebody's shoulder, or take somebody the hand if you're comfortable with that and let's take a moment tonight Chris if you can put some like prayer music playing I'd appreciate it I just want us to take a few moments tonight don't assume don't assume don't assume that everything is lovely and dandy in everybody's life here tonight you don't know what people are experiencing and what they're going through thank you for your cooperation tonight I appreciate it very much and I want us to take a few moments don't be in a hurry don't be in a hurry there's people here tonight that's recently lost loved ones there's people here tonight that's going through domestic difficulty. There's people going through all kinds of stuff, and we need each other right now. So if you would tonight, put your hand on somebody's shoulder, take them by the hand, whatever you feel comfortable in doing, and let's pray for one another right now. Let's just spend a few minutes here tonight, just a few moments. Let's pray for one another tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus. God, you see tonight. You see tonight where this church is at. You see where the people of this church is at. Yes, you're going to have a strong, victorious, mighty, powerful church. Yes, you are. But right now, God, there's people that's going through some hard times and some difficult times. And I pray that the hand of God right now would be made manifest. I, I want to see the manifest presence of God right now. God, we're, we're, we're understanding you went through these times. You went through circumstances even far worse than ours but nonetheless ours still hurt the pain is still there the sting is still there the hurt is still there and i pray tonight god that you would grab this church by the hand that you would grab us by the hand oh god grab us by the hand and walk through this trial that we're facing this temptation that we're facing this this grievous time of despair oh god that we're facing and give us comfort and give us courage I pray that the hand of God would work. I pray that the Spirit of God would move. I pray that the hand of God would be made manifest here tonight. God, work on behalf of your church tonight, I pray. God, work on behalf of your church tonight. God, work on your... Hear the prayer. Hear the cry. Hear the, the sorrow of our soul tonight, oh God. We need you. 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 In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let the Spirit of the Lord work. Oh God, let the Spirit of the Lord work. Oh, God, let the Spirit of the Lord work. Oh, God, let the Spirit of the Lord work in Jesus' name. 
In Jesus' name, we need you tonight, oh God. We need you tonight, oh God. We need to know that your hand is there, that your hand is on our lives, that you're still guiding us, that you're still directing us. We need to know, oh God, that you're in control, that you're leading us, that you're the commander of our soul tonight, God. We need to know that. And so tonight we lift up our eyes unto the hills from which cometh our help, for our help cometh down from the Father which made heaven and earth. I pray in Jesus' name that the Spirit of the Lord would work here tonight. I pray in Jesus' name that we would feel the balm of Gilead. I pray in Jesus' name that the Holy Ghost would speak to our hearts and give us that divine assurance, God, that if we're willing to step up to that next rung, that next level of discipleship and commitment, that the joy waiting is going to be great. The joy waiting, the reward is going to be great that it's going to be worth the journey. It's going to be worth the commitment. It's going to be worth, oh God, us submitting, us committing, us giving and working for the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Let's everybody worship the Lord for a moment, shall we? Everybody, let's praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank the Lord. Thank you very much tonight. Thank you for uh, working with me here tonight. And uh, before you leave, make sure you just hug somebody's neck real tight. Tell them you love them. Tell them you're glad they're here, that you're a part of the family, and they're just glad to see your brother and sister here tonight, shall we? God bless you tonight. You're dismissed in the beautiful name of Jesus. God bless you tonight. <laughs>